Good morning, family and friends. Allow me to read to you out of God's Word uh, from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But why not this morning, uh, in honour of God's Word, that all of us stand together, if it's convenient for you, and let's stand together and read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who have been following us online over these past few weeks, you would know that we are going through the book of Romans. And then we hit a pause button as we came to Holy Week. We journeyed through Palm Sunday, Monday Thursday, Good Friday, Easter or Resurrection Sunday with more familiar Bible passages. This morning though, uh, we, um, and over the next two Sundays, we want to continue with the book of Romans, uh, picking up on a set of Bible passages, namely Romans chapter 9, verses 11, which are arguably the most difficult to teach or to exposit. But for today, uh, we would, or I would like you to uh, just be aware of the goal that we are setting today. That as we reflect upon Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to chapter 10, verses 15, we understand better the sovereign grace of God in God's election that calls forth the right human responsibility. So that is the goal uh, for today. Um, what theologians call God's election or divine predestination, now that has created theological debates in the corridors of church history. Up to today, the debates have not been resolved between the Arminians and the Calvinists. One example of this debate is what may be called double predestination or double election. What that means is that there are some, and primarily from the school of hyper-Calvinists, from John Calvin's school, they believe that God not only elects those who are saved, but at the same time, God also elects others to be condemned. So that's double election. Now, that may sound logical, but here's the problem. And two things that I want to encourage you to keep in mind today. That from a theological standpoint, that which sounds logical may not match with the supra-rational logic of God. Why? Because this transcends human logic and paradigms of human thinking. I do not believe God elects those to be damned. The Bible tells us that mankind or fallen humanity is condemned because of our choices, not because of God's election or choice. In other words, God is not responsible for the sins of humanity. I do resonate with what my pastor in Australia once said, God does not send people to hell. 
people choose to go to hell. But the debate rages on. I've been asked uh, maybe what school of thinking I belong to, Calvinists or Arminians. I don't wish to offend either the Calvinists or the Arminians among us. So the best I can describe it actually is maybe Amino Calvi. I believe both. And as we shall see in Romans chapter 9, God's sovereignty. Chapter 10, our responsibility. Chapter 11, God's wisdom to tie in divine sovereignty and human responsibility in the whole construct of God's divine wisdom. But even as we cover the ground today, there is a need for theological holism and theological humility. One thing that we need to keep in mind, the second is this, that there is a need for theological holism and theological humility. What that means in, is life is actually complex and truth is even more complex. There's a need for us to attempt to look at truth holistically, to look at truth in its complexity. In this case, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or human responsibility or our responsibility. And then to live with theological humility. Now, what that means is that we continue to take the posture that there's so much to learn and we desire to continue on this pilgrimage of learning because we have not cornered the market on understanding truth. So whilst predestination and divine election is a difficult subject for finite human minds, I would like this morning for our hearts and minds to bear upon fundamental truths. So, what's the fundamental truth with regards to election? Well, first of all, notice that the word election is simply to make a choice. The act of choosing. And God's election is basically tied to this purpose. I would like to highlight two things to you out of Romans chapter 9 about the election of God. And these I've drawn and adapted from Reverend Edmund Chan. And the first is this. God's election is profoundly mysterious. I want to demonstrate to you why it is a mystery, because it goes against human expectations or human reasoning. It's not illogical, but it's supra-logical. It goes beyond human logic or human inclinations or even human thoughts. But God's election is not just profoundly mysterious, more importantly, God's election, divine election, is gloriously merciful. If we can lay hold in some fashion the mercy and the mystery of God in His election, a true understanding of election will always, always lead to worship. So let's pause now, even as we ask God for His help as we come to one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Heavenly Father, open our eyes this morning to behold wondrous truths out of your word. And may we, as we understand these truths, go forth to live in light of these truths to your eternal glory. Amen. Now, as we come to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, three things are highlighted for us. 
The first is this, God's election of Israel as his favoured people. And there are eight privileges, eight blessings that you can see that actually we read in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But the second thing, in spite of the blessings they had received, they failed God. Why? And what he, right now, I want to make an aside as we pause to find out why they failed God. That in spite of all the blessings, the eight privileges we read earlier on, they had received, they had failed God. Why? Because of their unbelief. There were these presumptions that Paul had to deal with. And the first presumption was this, the presumption of a preferred race. How was it possible that Jews were marginalized, pushed aside, even by the Gentiles? The Jews bank on the fact that they were national or political Israel and therefore preferred by God. But they didn't realize that God was looking for spiritual Israel. In the redemptive purposes of God, the Lord had said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. The gospel was not just for, relig for religious pedigree, it is the gospel for anybody. Then there was the presumption of a pervert performance. This covered the things that the Jews thought that God will accept and what he rejects. They assumed that God preferred these practices and displays of piety and worship. They pursued a law of righteousness, and you find that in, in Romans chapter 9, verses 31 to 32, chapter 10, uh, verse 3. Um, they pursue it with zeal, but, but it is a zeal without knowledge. Truth is you come to God by faith. And that's how the Gentiles attain righteousness. They attain what was called in Greek, katalambano. It was seized, a righteousness that was seized and can't be taken away. Jesus hadn't even, the Jews hadn't even arrived. The Gentiles had grasped the righteousness that is by faith. And you'll find that in chapter 9, verse 30, chapter 10, verse 6. And that is the righteousness of God. You'll find that in chapter 10, verses 3 to 4. The Gentiles had found grace righteousness. The difference is the Gentiles believed and trusted in the stone that caused men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The Gentiles believed and trusted Jesus as Lord and attained to the righteousness that is by faith. Something that the Jews missed out. When you meet God, here's a question. When you meet God, what kind of righteousness will you have? What righteousness are you basing your destiny on? Then there's a third presumption of a, prepared, a preferred Messiah. Jews had their idea of what their Messiah should be. Certainly, it was not a Messiah who dies like a lot of people. We want our leaders, our heroes to be strong, and we set them on a pedestal. So the Jews rejected Jesus who came as the suffering Messiah, despite what the prophecies actually foretold about him. His blood be upon us, they said, and upon our children. And it has been, it would seem, so to this day. How much therefore for them and all those who have yet to believe in Jesus that they can call on the one they have not, they have not believed in? 
but they need to hear first through the messengers or ambassadors. Yet they cannot hear without someone preaching, carizo, a herald to them, preaching as a herald to them. And how can they preach unless they have been sent? So Paul's heart and prayer in chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, chapters 9, verses 30 to 33, was that Israel may be saved. you find that actually in chapter 10, verse 1, and that they would receive once again God's promised blessings. So, after these first two things, we come to the third thing that is highlighted. If Israel chosen of God had failed God, does it mean that the promises of God have failed? And Paul says, no. Why? Because Paul demonstrated the truth that not all Israel are Israel. There is a political, natural Israel, but there is also a spiritual Israel as a covenant community living in a covenant relationship with a covenant-keeping God. On the basis of this, Paul says God's election and God's promises in light of his word will never fail. And now we come to that controversially well-known passage. So let's read from Romans chapter 9 and we'll read from verses 10 through 16. Verses 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so here we come to the key verse. And this key unlocks our understanding on Romans chapter 9. And the key verse is this in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This particular verse unlocks our understanding of Romans chapter 9 as it pertains to God's election, God's sovereign choice over those he calls his own. So, the key is, it does not depend on man, it all depends on God. The first truth that we have presented today is, God's election is profoundly mysterious. In verse 10, when it says, not only that, and not only that, it emphasizes something very important. This connecting phrase conveys an important thought. Paul is saying from verses 1 through 10 that God's promises have not failed. He has chosen Israel. Israel has failed. But God's promise in his word does not fail. His election will not collapse just like he has chosen Isaac, the son of Abraham. That has not failed. Any strict Jew knows, of course, he chose Isaac. He is Abraham's son. But Abraham had more than one son at that time. What's the name of the other son? Ishmael. He was born of Hagar, the servant maid. But the strict Jew will say, no, 
Ishmael has no legal right to the inheritance of Abraham and the spiritual blessings of spiritual heritage. It is Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael has no claim, no rights. He is an illegitimate child as it, come, as, as it comes uh, to bear on Jewish lineage. Isaac is the one instead. Here Paul says, not only that, but not only that, Isaac's son, God also made a distinction. Now here's a shocker. Israel's son, same mother, same spiritual heritage. They are twins. Physically, it's hard to make a distinction. Both are born of the same spiritual lineage. How do you make a distinction? Yet God did. By divine election, it's mysterious. Because the way God elected is different from us. Between Esau and Jacob, if we elected, we would follow the conventional norms of culture and the Jews would definitely elect Esau for two reasons. First, he's the eldest. It's true whether we are Chinese, Indian, Middle Eastern in culture. By and large, and especially when it came to ancient days, boys are, for example, preferred before girls, and the older is preferred to the younger. So if you do choose between Isaac, between Esau and Jacob, there's no contest. The birthright goes to the firstborn, as it were, although they were twins. Esau came out first. He is the older, obvious choice. But no God chose the younger. Jacob and rejected Esau. And God said this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The word hated is used in a figurative sense. Not literal. What that means is love less or preferred less. But, but God, you might say, God, that just doesn't make sense. You have got it wrong. Ah, and then some theologians even say the way to resolve this anomaly is simple. It's called foreknowledge. What that means is God foreknew that Jacob, who was the schemer, would repent and become a wonderful man and would change his name from Jacob to Israel. God knew that. And because God foreknew that Jacob would repent, his name would be changed, Everything will be wonderful. So God chose Jacob over Esau. And think about Esau, actually. Boy, this guy despised his birthright. Exchange porridge for his birthright just because he was hungry. So in the end, God, you are correct. Your choice is correct because of his foreknowledge. Do you know that actually that's not theologically sound? Paul made it very clear. He spoke about God's purpose in his sovereign election. Nothing to do with the boys. Go back to verse 11. Yet before the twins were born, what does it mean? It means before they had done anything good or bad, and God is basing the election not upon the deeds they will do, but rather upon God's purpose according to his choice, not God's preference according to their merits. No, it is not upon works, any works that they had done. 
So please understand this about the mystery of divine election. Number one, it is not of natural descent. Number two, it is not by desire or human will. Paul himself said this in verse 16. It depends not on human will, not on man's desire or man's determination or on their deeds, but before they were born, God had already chosen. It's mysterious. Then on what basis does God choose? There's no reason. It sounds so arbitrary. The reason why predestination and the doctrine of election is so difficult is because it seems to present the arbitrariness of God. Whims and fancies of the divine. Arbitrary. It's unfair. Why God chooses one and not the other? And so we react against the unfairness. But from Paul's point of view, it's totally fair. It's nothing to do with works. Actually, if it had everything to do with works, it would have been unfair. Please understand, God has said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is fairly due to us is judgment. But God, by His mercy, in a mysterious way, elects some to be His covenant people, having a covenant relationship based on the covenant promises with the covenant God. It's mysterious. Mysterious because He didn't choose because of pedigree or performance, not what we've done, not how good we are. God's election is based upon His choice. That is based upon His compassion and His mercy. I want us to know today this about divine or God's election. At the end of the day, it is profoundly mysterious. And it is profoundly mysterious because it circumvents any aspect of human expectation. And God simply chooses because He is God out of His sovereignty because it is His purpose. His will, His choice, not based upon our performance, our national descent, natural descent, our deeds, our determination, or our desires. Not based upon the will of man, but upon the will of God. And the key verse to anchor that thought for us is verse 16. Let me read that again for you so our minds can be anchored upon its truth. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. See, the Jews got it all wrong. And many people today get it totally wrong as well. When they think that the basis of salvation is based on human works, it is not. The basis of salvation is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. God doesn't look at the outward. And that's why the things we do and our spiritual heritage don't impress God. Today, there are some Christians who think if I'm baptized in the right mode and I belong to the right church and I sing the right hymns with the right tempo, the right pitch, the right tune, if I have the right version of the Bible, if I have the right fellowship, if I attend all the right meetings, give to the church building fund, do all that I can, then God will be impressed. The truth is, God is not impressed. If these things are out of a sense, if we do these things out of a sense of gratitude and worship, God receives them with a father's joy. 
But if they are done to gain God's approval because he should be impressed by these things that we do, Paul says, you have missed it. God is not impressed. It is only by his choice, only by his calling. And he chooses not by human yardsticks, but because he is God. He has the right to choose. He has exercised that right and he has chosen us. And you know what the response when we, um, when we hear something like this? Instead of worship, instead of worship, the response is, but it's not fair. Paul dealt with this in verse 14. Paul says, no, you got it all wrong. For it to be unfair it means that the justice due us is not given. Then it becomes unfair. But the truth is, we all have sinned, we all have rebelled against God, and all have fallen short of His glory. When we deserve judgment, and when God elects some to be saved, it is not a question of fairness. It is a question of mercy. It was at the cost of God's perfect son. Mercy. It's mysterious. But here's something I want to ask you. God desires none to perish. Is that true or false? True. But understand the other side. While God desires none to perish, the truth is there will be many who perish. Why? Because God did not intend to save all. It's a fact of scripture. While God does not desire any to perish, he does not intend to save all. If you ask why and you want to debate with God, uh, can you please wait till you get to heaven? Then you debate with God. And I tell you, on the other side of eternity, even as a thinking non-Christian, you will fall on your face and say, I deserve it. I can see th things clearly now. God did not intend to save all. Why? Because of the consequences of sin. That's why. All deserve to be damned. But out of God's mercy, he saved the elect of God. So this morning, for you who are sitting at home and watching, how many of you are born-again Christians? How many of you are born-again Christians? If you put your hands up and someone is sitting next to you, do you realize, you put your hands up, that you are the elect of God? Mysterious grace poured out to you. But this is also where we begin to see it's not just mysterious, but the second thing, that God's election is merciful, gloriously merciful. We find that in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 20. Because Paul, responding to the objections, demonstrated the glorious mercy of God. There are some non-Christians, and um, I also confess that in my backslidden years, uh, often I felt that if I can meet and debate with God, I would tell him to his face that his policy is terrible. How can he do that? How can he elect like that? 
if he doesn't elect me, then there's really nothing I can do. It's not about performance. It's not about pedigree. So who can resist his will? Who can resist God's will? It's not as if I can go to the throne of God and demand, why you made me like that? Why didn't you choose me? That's the objection. If you don't choose me, what can I do? Paul gave a twofold answer. The first part is simple to understand. And the second part, he used it to demonstrate the glorious mercy of God. So the first part, when people come and say God is unfair, who can resist his will? If he unfairly chooses this way, Paul's answer is zip up. Two words. Not too difficult to understand. Zip up. You have no right to talk like that to God. God is God. You are not. He has all the right to do it because he is God. In other words, legally, spiritually, morally, righteously, God has the right, the legal right to do that. So before any court, God stands righteous for his decrees. Verse 20, Paul says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? That means really zip up. What is form? Shall what is form say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Verse 21 says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? You can understand that right. He is the creator. He is God. Actually, that answer would be enough. That answer would be sufficient. But with great theological insight on the heart of God, Paul gives a second part to the answer. And this second part blows your mind away. It short circuit all our thoughts and imagination about God. What if God has the right but relinquish the right rather than to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. Instead, he endured, he bore with patience, he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Objects of wrath, by the way, who since we have just come through Holy Week, objects of wrath who spat upon the face of God because that is what we did. What if he had the right to summarily judge. You are so bad. Boom, you're gone. But what if he instead laid that aside and did the very opposite? The opposite is that he endured, he bore, and not just bore with patience, not just bore with patience, but with bore with great patience, the people who spat on his face and trampled on his law, violated the truths, desecrated true worship of him. What if he endured, bore, bore with the people who shouldn't be endured, so as to demonstrate the glory of his love and mercy upon those he forgives, even us? Paul's point is profound. He says, if you understand how much mercy God gives to those who spit on his face when he could have destroyed them, how much more will he love us as his children? Today, I want you to know that God is not just creator. He is that. 
He is not just a judge. He is that too. But he has a deep desire to be our Father, to have an intimate relationship with us. That's God. He is preparing us in advance for glory. We are being changed from glory to glory. Oh, the glorious mercy of God to us who are vessels of wrath. But His mercy is also passionately wonderful. I will, He says, have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It makes sovereign election, God's election, a very, very reasonable reality, an awesome reality for us to appreciate. And we only have to think about that as we go back to what is mentioned in the chapter about Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. There was this, there was this background. Moses had gone up to the mountain to, to collect, the, to meet God, get the Ten Commandments. Whilst he was away, the people decided to make a golden calf. They made a golden calf, and out of that golden calf, when they got that done, there was sexual immorality, there were sexual orgies, idolatry, and immorality. So when Moses came down, he prayed, he begged for God's mercy. Mercy is when we know we are wrong and we are asking God to stay His judgment. The difference between grace and mercy is getting from God something positive. That's what grace is. Getting from God something positive, a favour we don't deserve or merit, unmerited favour. Mercy is the judgment we deserve. We say, God, please stop. Moses fell on his face and asked, and he begged for mercy from God, for the people's sin. God said, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Down through the corridors of time, many have got that phrase wrong. We think, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He's telling Moses, I'm an arbitrary God who has moods, and if I like your face, I will have mercy. But that's not what God is saying. Read the grammatical construct of what God says, what He is saying. He's saying that in the future, as I relate to you, when you have fallen for your future journey, I will relate to you in mercy. I will have mercy. That is future. On whom I will have mercy. Whom is better translated in the subjunctive as whoever I have mercy. The whoever in this subjunctive mood is actually an indefinite term. If it was a definite term, God is drawing the line. And he is saying, you cross that line, you are gone. But God using whoever is an indefinite, there's an indefiniteness to this. And it indicates, people, I want you to know, know. I want you to know I love you so much that there is nothing you can do that is outside my love. There is nothing outside the glorious mercy I have upon you. Whoever I have mercy, no matter how bad he is, no matter how bad you are, no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how deep the mud you wallow in, it doesn't matter. I will have mercy. That's God. No arbitrary sovereignty, no arbitrary election. A God who says, 
my grace is sufficient for you. My mercy will reach you no matter how deep you've sunk because I love you. I want to be your father. Whether you have committed idolatry or immorality, I will have mercy. Paul comes to a close to say, not just us, but to the Gentiles as well. In verses 25 and 26, Paul gives to prophets to say that the mercy of God is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for you and I. I don't know about you, but an understanding of God's election should bring out of us worship. You and I are saved by the mercy of God. In spite of our sins, in spite of our waywardness, our darkness, our wallowing in mud, God picks us up and says, I'm your father, you are mine. I have mercy on you. Whoever, what a grace, what a glory. I don't want us today to leave here thinking of God's election as some theological or philosophical puzzle that we cross swords with one another and debate. I so wish that we can see divine election, God's election in Romans chapter 9, and we fall on our knees and say, thank you, Lord. Let's start doing that. Let's put down our swords and let's come in worship. Don't understand fully the mystery of election, but I know God you love me and I can call you father and you call me my son, my daughter. For your grace, your love, your mercy, we worship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have elected us and called us to be your children. Thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. May we come today to worship out of the gratitude of our hearts. For truly, your grace still amazes all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.